We are at the very end of the book of Luke, Luke 24, beginning in verse 36, and we'll take it right to the end this morning. While you're turning there, men, uh, I want to remind you that Trent Moe will be telling his one-man story at our next men's breakfast. That's a week from this coming Saturday on October 7th over in the East Sanctuary, beginning at 830 uh, bring five bucks, lay it down, we'll give you a hot coffee and a delicious breakfast and uh, a story that you won't soon forget. So uh, that's a week from this Saturday. Okay, Luke 24, beginning in verse 36, I'll read you follow. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they'd seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Amen. Thus far, God's word. Well, here we are at the end of the series, 92 sermons, uh, 13 uh, preachers, five reading services, and as of next week, uh, five reflection services. And it all began back on April 11, 2021, when we still had two months left out in the parking lot when we were all gathering together each Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. And it's ending today uh, with just about two weeks until having been in this book for two and a half years. And we end where we begin. I have to tell you, you see the, the sermon title here. I was asked by email, what is your sermon title for this week? And uh, I wrote back, we'll end where we begin. Uh, good news of great joy for all people. Well, the title is Good News of Great Joy for All People. You got my whole email there in the, uh, in the bulletin. But that's great because that's exactly where we are today. We're ending where we begin. Good news of great joy for all people. And it's summed up right here in our passage this morning. And, and therefore, it's today's main point. So here's how this passage sums all that up. All that was foretold by the prophets and the Messiah 
and was finally fulfilled in Jesus by way of his life and ministry, by way of his death and resurrection, every bit of which was made certain by the apostles who uh, were witnesses to the life and the death and the life again of Jesus, who were empowered by the coming Spirit and the ascended Christ, and who were known for their joy. Not joy that was ginned up in any way, but joy that was genuine, joy that began and, and emanated from their hearts. In short, everything that was said about the Messiah and the Messiah said about himself had come true. In fact, where were Jonathan and, and, and Jocelyn? There you are right there. Uh, this morning when you said sometimes we have to remind ourselves, you know, why, why we're in this game. This is why you're in this game. This is why we're all in this game. Everything in the Old Testament, everything that Jesus had reminded them of throughout this book, we find here has come true. The, 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 the very thing that Luke hoped for Theophilus back in chapter 1, verse 3, namely that he would be certain of these things, we can be certain of. In fact, that's the certainty, as we'll see this morning, that Jesus wants his disciples to proclaim. And that's good news of great joy for all people. And here's how Luke brings that home. The certainty of the good news and Christ's commission to proclaim it. He does it by facts. He rehearses some facts. But he also does so by way of the framework of this chapter, the way in which he's put uh, these 50-some-odd verses together. So notice the progression of each section here in chapter 24. It, they, they all begin with a question, and they're followed by, or rather, it's followed by a rebuke, which is followed by an exhortation, and then those who receive these things are off to tell what they have seen and heard. So, for instance, in uh, verses 1 through 12 that Eric Tanis preached on a couple of weeks ago, uh, the question is found in verse 5 and is asked by the two angels, why do you seek the living among the dead? And then a rebuke, he's not here, he's risen. And then an exhortation. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And in response to all that, they're off to tell, beginning in verse 8. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Then we get to last week's passage, beginning in verse 13, preached by Eric Twisselman. That started with a question asked by Jesus. What's this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Followed by a rebuke. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then an exhortation in verse 26. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then they were, they were off to tell, right? Verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And in verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them 
and the breaking of the bread. Well, this week's passage follows that same pattern. Luke used this progression like repeated hammer blows to impress upon Theophilus the certainty of the fact that everything in the Scriptures about the Messiah, true. Everything that Jesus had said about Himself, true. That's why the women at the tomb, the pair on the road, the eleven, and all the rest there in Jerusalem, they weren't coddled. Oh, sorry for startling you. (laughs) They were rebuked. These are things they'd been told. These are things they should have known. These are things they should have been anticipating. I was reflecting on this the other day while I was uh, walking the dog. And uh, as I've made the final turn from Ocean View down Eastridge, this came to my mind. You're mortally ill. And I have in this vial uh, the antidote, the, the cure for your illness. And I offer it to you, but uh, you refuse. And I reply, ah. Yeah, right. Yeah, I get it. It's hard to believe that what's in this little vial here could actually cure you, so I'll just put it away. Sorry for being a bother, and you won't hear from me again. No. No, that wouldn't happen. In fact, it wouldn't be kind of me to do that, would it? No, rather, I I would reason with you, I would cajole you, I would do anything I could to get you to take that vial and knock it back. Because that kind of truth, life-saving truth, demands a response, even if it's no. And that's why good news of great joy for all people, also a life-saving truth, uh, of, of ultimate Uh, life-saving truth demands a response, a response commanded by Jesus and exemplified by his disciples. So let's begin here by noticing how uh, Luke sets up this passage. Interestingly, it's a passage that's that's interlaced with the uh, companion volume, Acts of the Apostles. So we get here at the end of Luke what we'll pick up in about eight months when we begin the book of Acts. Uh, One scholar refers to this as epilogue, which serves as prologue. So we get some uh, of the same facts in Luke 24 as we do in Acts chapter 1. So take a look at the setup to the scene here. Beginning in verse 36, we read, and they were talking about these things. They being the pair who had just Uh, returned from Emmaus, made that seven-mile, two-and-a-half-hour march uphill this time, and they'd found the 11 and others who were gathered with them in a room there in Jerusalem. And these things uh, is the report of that which they had heard and seen there in Emmaus and on the road with Jesus. And so you can imagine their excitement, You can imagine uh, the heightened volume as they continue to tell the story. Uh, You can imagine one voice talking over the other as Jesus enters the room. 
But Jesus doesn't enter to impress. You know, it's not like they're talking about these things and all of a sudden, ba-da! Hey, fellas, it's me! That's not, that's not Jesus' uh, M.O. No, rather, he, he shows up to encourage, right? So it's unpretentious, it's understated. He's suddenly there in their midst, and he says, peace to you. Which is how it all began, right? Peace was announced on the night of his birth, Luke 2.14, and peace was embedded in as well as the residual message of his ministry all throughout the book, and we'll see it again as we get into the book of Acts. So how did the disciples respond to this greeting? Well, it says there, you'll see, they were startled and they were frightened. (laughs) They thought they were seeing a disembodied spirit. That's exactly the way it went for them on the lake when they saw Jesus walking on the water. And, you know, you've got to imagine, they're thinking to themselves, nobody walks on the water. It must be a ghost. Ah!" And the same thing here. Nobody rises from the dead. It must be a ghost. Ah! But you've got to remember that the, 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 the disciples didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead. They weren't anticipating an empty tomb. They didn't go to look for an empty tomb. And when they were told about the empty tomb, they didn't believe it, right? But these words spoken by the women seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. 24.11. The disciples were just as skeptical of this as the rest of humanity. As as skeptical as you and I. So, while they were at least fascinated by the news that had reached them concerning Jesus, they weren't looking for him to show up. And with that set up, we're we're launched into this instructional framework that uh, Luke employs to hammer home his point. And it begins with a question asked by Jesus. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? It's a brilliant question because it it speaks to a couple of different things. One, it speaks to their mood. I just showed up and offered you peace, and you've responded in fear. What's, What's going on here? And then it addressed their perception or lack of it concerning reality. Um, Why do you doubt in your heart that it's me when I'm standing here right in front of you? So this is why Jesus' question was followed with a rebuke. Fellas, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself. So he begins by offering them visible proof of the resurrection. And, and he adds this emphatic, it is I myself. Uh, uh, to put it another way, um, guys, it's really me. Uh, your eyes don't deceive you. I'm standing in front of you. And then he says there, the second half of verse 39, touch me and see. So along with the visible proof, Jesus offers physical proof of his resurrection. And he adds this clarifying statement, for a spirit, which you think I am, a ghost, 
does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And then he asks in this rather offhanded way there in verse 41, got anything here to eat? And so along with the visible proof and the physical proof, he offers mechanical proof. <laughs> that is to say, he, uh, he not only looks and feels like a human, but he does what a human would do. And notice that Jesus, I think this is interesting, um, he's not the one providing the food, right? So he doesn't have anything up his sleeves. This isn't magic. This isn't some illusion. You know, for all the amazing revelatory meals that Jesus provided, we know about two of them at least, uh, feeding the 5,000 back in Luke 9, feeding the 4,000 in uh, Mark, or rather Matthew 15 and Mark 8, it's this simplest of meals that is arguably the, the greatest. Because you have a man who was dead, now alive. And he's not only alive, but he's actually eating <laughs> right in front of them. It's remarkable. Luke is driving home the point that Jesus has been raised. And he's been raised in body. He's not some apparition that is floating above them and pops in and pops out. And I think I saw him here or there. He's right there in the room. The one who suffered in the flesh is standing before them in the flesh. And Jesus wants them to be convinced of it. And it appears here that they were, because you see there in verse 41, they disbelieved for joy. Uh, they wouldn't have experienced that joy unless they were at some level convinced of what they were seeing. They disbelieved for joy, and they were marveling. What does it mean that they disbelieved for joy? Well, I imagine it's something similar to what Jacob felt back in Genesis 45 when his son Joseph, whom he uh, uh, had been told was dead and had believed this for some years on end, was actually told he was very much alive, causing him to, um, causing his heart to become numb, Genesis 45, 26, for he did not believe them. Reminds me of, of a grade school camp counselor. I was probably 10. And after that summer, he was killed uh, in a motorcycle accident. And decades later, I, I met his sister. And, and I said, you're, you're Roger's sister? And she said, yes, I am. I said, you know, I, I, I remember him from that summer, and I just want to let you know how sorry I am, and I, you know, I, all those years later, I expressed my condolences, and she says, Roger? He's still alive. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and my, my heart was numb. I, I disbelieved for joy. <laughs> and that's exactly what's happening here among the disciples. So having been appropriately and effectively rebuked for their disbelief, Jesus goes on now to exhort them. And here's his exhortation. You see it there in verse 44. 
fellas, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And, and we, we have rehearsed those over the months, over the years, from this lectern, Jesus doing this, and of course they would like never got it, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms, which is shorthand for the whole Bible, uh, must be fulfilled. Jesus understood the Scriptures in total to be the outline of his life and ministry. That's what he told the disciples beginning in Luke chapter 4 and going all the way through this book, and now he's validating it here in Luke 24, especially in verse 46, that the Christ should die as final payment for our sins and that he should rise from the dead as proof of that payment. Facts already hammered home in this chapter to the two women at the tomb and the pair on the road to Emmaus. To be sure, Jesus did use his scars to prove that he was alive, but Jesus used the Scripture to explain what it all meant, even helping the disciples in verse 45 by opening their minds to understand the Scriptures. Let's go through it again. I'm going to explain to you point by point by point. That's good news. That's life-saving news. That's news, according to verse 47, that demands a response. Namely, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which is not just agreeing with the good news. Yeah, I hear what you say, Jesus, and uh, yeah, I can get behind that. No, actually, it's living in response to it. It's getting behind it with your life, saying no to yourself and your agenda, and yes to the Lord and His, revealed in Scripture, summed up in Christ. And it's not only news that demands a response, but it's news that demands to be proclaimed, off to tell others about, in Jesus' name, to all nations, making it a universal um, uh, application. In fact, we'll see that in spades when we get to the book of Acts, where the apostles, I love this at the front end, you know, they're always asking, is it time for the kingdom? Is it time for the kingdom? And at the beginning of Acts, they ask, is it, is it time for the kingdom to be established? And Jesus says, well, no, actually it's time to start preaching the good news of the kingdom. And for the next 28 chapters, that's what they do. They proclaim the good news from uh, uh, Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Rome, from which every road led to the rest of the world. And they proclaim that good news like Jesus did by way of the Scripture. So Peter proclaimed Christ among the Jews by way of the Scripture. We see that in Acts 2. Philip to the African official by way of the Scripture in Acts 8. Peter to the Italian soldier by way of the Scripture in Acts 10. Paul to the Greek philosophers by way of the Scripture in Acts 17. And they did all that as witnesses. Witnesses of that which they had seen. And I can't underestimate the importance of verse 48 where Jesus affirms the fact that you are witnesses of these things. Just want to do a sidebar here on the importance of the apostolic witness 
Uh, witnesses are important. Uh, you know, I think of conspiracy theories over the last few decades, one being that uh, we never really did go to the moon. Well, there are four fellows who are still alive that walked on the moon. They're witnesses to that fact um, that Elvis is really dead. You know, the Elvis sightings in the, in the 80s and the 90s. Well, when I was working at a mortuary in Uptown Whittier, the trade mag is American funeral director. And I remember reading a, 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 a multi-installment thing on the fact that Elvis is really dead. Uh, we interview the people who picked his body up at uh, Graceland. We're going to interview the, interview the personnel that embalmed him. Uh, we're going to interview... So Elvis is dead. And they're witnesses to this fact. Believe it or not, I used to run the anchor leg on our junior high relay team. I have to use the banister to get up the stairs today, but at one point, I actually was a fleet of foot, and there are witnesses <laughs> to that fact. So Theophilus could know with certainty that Jesus lived and died and lived again because there were witnesses to those facts, and they were reliable witnesses. Um, I, I find 1 Corinthians 15 especially compelling in this regard. You might want to turn there. It's, uh, or scroll there, or however you can get to 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. It's really a summation of the gospel here. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's what's of primary importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, meaning that He was dead. You don't bury somebody who's not dead. And that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And this is all in keeping with Jesus' words here in Luke 24. The fulfillment and understanding of the Scriptures. But is there anybody who can attest to these things? It's, it's one thing to assert this, but is there any, anybody actually see that happen? Well, um, it, it, it goes on. Yeah, there, there are some witnesses here, uh, beginning in verse 5. And Jesus appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, right, who denied Jesus three times, the last time profanely. Uh, we saw that in Luke 22. Then to the twelve all of whom deserted Jesus when he needed them the most. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That's the capacity of this room at one time. Not the only ones, but at one time. Then he appeared to James. Who was James? Well, he was one of Jesus' brothers who I assume was uh, part of his family who came there in I think Mark chapter 3 or 4 to take Jesus away because they thought he'd lost his mind. He'd lost his senses. Then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me, that is Paul, who had been a killer of Christians. So most of those cited as witnesses of the good news were at some time and in some way opponents of the good news. Some people will say, well, you know, you can't really rely on these 
Bible people because they, they were in on the fix, you know. They, they all had, they didn't even believe it. But they saw with their own eyes the truth of it, became convinced of it, and are now witnesses to it. And so Luke liberally leans on these witnesses, and we'll see that as we get into the book of Acts. Uh, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Acts 2.32. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Acts 3.15. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come with him who are now his witnesses. Acts 13.31. And then you had the apostle John who, who graphically uh, describes his role, and really that of the apostles, as uh, witnesses in 1 John 1, where he speaks of the fact that we heard him two times over. He says, we heard him four times over. He says, we've seen him with our eyes. He even goes on to say, we touched with our hands this one concerning the word of life. And it's him that we proclaim to you. The gospel hinges on the reliability of the apostolic witness. Because as, as Paul put it to the church at Corinth, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Because if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. So the good news demands a response and demands to be proclaimed by faithful witnesses in Luke's day and on the basis of those faithful witnesses in our day. It all rises and falls on the apostolic witness. But Jesus added this. He added that the good news must be proclaimed in power. In power. Take a look at verse 49. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So the promise of my Father is the promise of the Holy Spirit, uh, the one who hovered over the earth uh, at the time of creation, the one who uh, uh, hovered over Mary, overshadowed Mary at the Immaculate Conception, the one who empowered Jesus during his incarnation. This is the one who would empower the apostles to be uh, off to tell others about this fact. Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. And it's in that power that we're to do the same thing. Until Billy Graham, no one had preached the gospel to more people than D.L. Moody. Um, but Moody's success was tied neither to his education. In fact, Moody himself said, I never had the advantage of an education. He was never really formally educated. Nor his giftedness. Because as a young man, he was told by two different people, you know, the best thing for you to do is nothing. Just sit still and keep your mouth shut. One, one fellow said, you make too many mistakes in grammar. But he was a, a, a success in the pulpit. 
And it was tied to the power of the Spirit in his life. R.A. Torrey, who did some time at Biola back in the day, noted that prior to 1871, Moody, uh, though diligent in his work, largely labored in his own strength. He, He didn't really have any spiritual power. But in that year, there were these two women, and they started to pray for Moody. And Moody heard about it. And so he went to them and inquired as to what it is that you're praying for me. And they said, well, we're praying, I have it right here, that you'll get the power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, for all of his hard work, Moody could have been offended by that and, and said, well, you know, I don't think you know what you're talking about. But instead, he began praying with them. And he said, I began to cry as I never did before. I really felt that I did not want to live if I could not have this power for service. Which reminded me of a story I heard. Uh, I think I was in college, and this fellow said there was a guy who wanted to see Moody preach, always wanted to hear Moody preach. And so he goes um, to hear him on the occasion that he had, he, he had come into town, and he was asked what his impression was of Moody's preaching, and he said, this must be of God, because I see no relationship between that man and what's going on in this room. <laughs> but Moody hadn't changed, but the Spirit's hold on his preaching had. I was reading a book within the last year about the great missionary of this same time, William Carey, uh, in human terms, not a great preacher. But his reliance on the Spirit's power caused him to be mightily used in such a way that Carrie did things that far exceeded his abilities. Gospel proclamation, be it across a pulpit or a lectern like this in the church or across a table at Starbucks, it's got to be done in the power of of the Spirit, for which the apostles were waiting in our passage and in which they were drenched with God's people in Acts chapter 2. And there's never been a shortage of that power. No uh, rolling blackouts, no droughts that cause the turbines to stop spinning. That power was for them then and it's for us now. So, where does this leave us? How does the story end? How does the book end? Well, it ends uh, as it began with blessing. Uh, Blessing in chapter 1, verse 64, and blessing here, uh, beginning with Jesus, blessing his disciples there in verse 50, you see. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Jesus' ascension, this is, this is really beautiful, his ascension vindicated his conviction. 
Back in Luke 22, right there at the end, where the religious leaders say, hey, if you're the Christ, tell us. And Jesus says, listen, if I tell you, you're not going to believe me. And if I ask you, you're not going to answer me. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it from his own lips. And with that, Jesus is condemned to crucifixion. So the words... (laughs) by which he was convicted and killed, for which he was killed. They proved to be true. What what he said was actually true. He wasn't lying. He was, in fact, the Son of Man. And here his blessing, the resurrected Christ, falls on his followers as he ascends to the right hand of the power of God, which is the place of perennial authority. I mean, what greater security could they have had can we have than that absolutely none and as jesus blesses his followers so jesus followers bless him and everything about which luke wanted theophilus to be certain is true it's true this was their response to that Reality here, right at the end of the book. First, they worshipped him. You know, they worshipped him not as he was. They worshipped him as he is, as the risen Christ. Second, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, joy for which there is no expiration date. The fizz never leaves the, the, the bottle. It's fulfillment of Jesus' words spoken in John 16, 22. He said, now this is before the cross. He said, and he just told him what was coming. He said, man, you, you guys have sorrow now, but I'm going to see you again. And your hearts are going to rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. That's what they're experiencing right here. And three, they were continually blessing God in the temple. But as we'll see in Acts, not only there, but in their homes and from house to house. The day of the cultus was over. Temple worship in Jerusalem was done. All religion had been fulfilled in Jesus. So, as Paul puts it, you are now God's temple, and God's Spirit now dwells in you. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. We don't have to go anywhere to worship God we come together, and He is in our midst. How beautiful. That is good news of great joy for all people. That's the thing about which Luke wanted Theophilus to be certain, leaving us with only one question, and that is, are you? Are you certain? Don't leave this morning until you have answered that ultimate life-saving question. Are you certain? You come and see me. You come see one of the ushers. They can direct you to somebody uh, to talk about these things because you can leave with certainty in your mind and heart today that Jesus is, in fact, crucified and risen Savior of the world. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord, what a beautiful note on which to end this book, and we're so grateful for Luke and his diligence in putting it all together. It really makes us look forward to his second volume in Acts. <clears throat> but Lord, for all the beauty and even the, the, the framework here of chapter 24, we pray that the facts of it would penetrate our hearts. Because for those of us who are stuck in sin, in a way of thinking, in a lifestyle that is self-destructive, for those of us that are comfortable with things that really are of no lasting value, we need you. Uh, we need your forgiveness. And we need the power that comes from you and you alone by way of your Spirit to animate, to strengthen, to embolden our lives, to give us something that we can give to others that's of lasting value. So, Lord, make us certain of these things today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.